please to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. It's on page 1755 in the Brown Bibles, 1755. We're going to read from Hebrews 11, verse 23. Just read um, a few verses there about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I want us to think about fear today. I think that one of the most uh, basic motivators in human behavior is fear. And uh, I think you can think of it from many angles really, but a couple that just stand out to me are that there is kind of negative way of thinking about fear, how fear can be paralyzing, how fear can lead to procrastination and inaction. It can lead to kind of just a fear of ever taking risks in life, a fear of commitment, a fear of doing things which you would otherwise do. Fear can be destructive to our God-given mandate as men and women who are called to bring his kingdom and to live under his rule and obey him and all things. Fear can curtail all of that. It can lead to people-pleasing and all of the kind of you know, things you don't admire about yourself because of the root of fear. And on the other hand, I think the other side to this is that fear actually motivates a heck of a lot of um, stuff that wouldn't otherwise happen. You could think of it as as a powerful agent behind productivity. You know, there's the fear of lack. You know, the very basic way, the fear of starving, that unless you sow, you won't reap. And there's that kind of basic compulsion to act out of fear. Some people feel a fear of living an insignificant life or a life that doesn't in, in any way make a mark. And so they're compelled to do something with their time and their energies. And fear can be at the root of everything you do in that sense. So it can, we can think about fear as being something which kills uh, productive sort of living for God and his glory and, f- and a fear which sort of seems to be at the motive of what looks like kind of positive productive outcome in life but one of the things that's in common is that we probably underestimate just how much fear is at the root of so much of the way we think feel and act in day-to-day basis and how much fear is affecting our behavior all of the time and unsurprisingly the bible has a lot to say about fear most of it's kind of negative in the sense that it's said to be something very dangerous I think there's something like 365 commands not to be afraid in the Bible. One for every day of the year, except for leap years. It's seen to be something which can be the root of so much that's ignoble in the way we live and act. Of cowardice or of avoiding responsibility, of not stepping up and not taking on things and not confronting things that you should confront and not doing the stuff with your life that you should be. And even to the point of shameful denial of Jesus Christ. Jesus talked about the fear which can make someone ashamed of him. And the other side to that, I think, to my knowledge, the only time that the Bible commends fear is 
the fear of God himself. You know, the famous refrain in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which I take to mean that the only way you can live a fully wise, well-orbed life, a balanced life, is when the fear of God is the most dominant factor in your decision-making, in your life direction, in how you approach temptation, in how you approach opportunities. The fear of the Lord, when it controls a person in the right sense, leads to, quite naturally, a wise life. And if the fear of the Lord is absent... Somebody who otherwise might look wise isn't truly wise because their life is disordered in that fundamental way. It creates the right kind of order of authority in your life. God first, everything else secondary and subservient to him. I think if you get that point today, basically you've understood everything you were saying. But here we have a passage which challenges us on these issues. I want you to just take a second to reflect on your own heart just examine yourself for a second. How big a part? How big a part? How big a part? It's a terrible way to start. How big a part does fear play in your day-to-day life? Does fear um, control and affect your relationships? You know, colleagues, friends, family. Does fear affect you in, in, in engagement with people, um, causing you not to love truly or sincerely or in integrity or to seek to be sycophantic and, and people-pleasing? How big a part does fear play in your kind of work and output and productivity in terms of what you're laboring to do for God? Do you find yourself either, on the one hand, paralyzed by fears, or on the other hand, compelled by them to overwork and, and to seek to build your life on an identity of what you do out of a sense of fear of, of being found out to be a fraud or insignificant or less than what you'd hoped you'd be? Does it affect your whole life direction, making you afraid of risk, making you afraid to, uh, to get on with what God's called you to do? I think I can put it down to one question, which I, I found so helpful to ask myself from time to time. What would you do today if you were not afraid of anyone or anything but God? Have you ever asked yourself that? What would you do today if you were not afraid of anyone or anything but God? And it seems to me that, I mean, one of the main reasons that the whole book of Hebrews is written is because it's written to people who were afraid. And faith which is what he commends and makes an argument for in the whole book, particularly in this chapter, is in opposition to fear. Wrong types of fear. Which is why we're coming back around to this idea of faith. What part does faith have to play in conquering fear? Fear, it seems to me, is when things other than God begin to take central concern and place in your heart. Faith enthrones God, trusts God, relies on God, and puts all other fears in their place. It begins to destroy the kind of negative fears which paralyze and cause us not to take on risk or responsibility or to live as God intended. It also releases you from what we can think of as those more positive fears that compel action and productivity because nobody should be motivated by fear. When you have faith in God, it begins to control your life in a new way, in a radically different way that you live for his pleasure, for his delight, for his reward, and not out of some fear of what you might miss or might not become. So I think seeking 
to know and how, how to trust God in day-to-day life and be a person who trusts him in faith will affect you in powerful ways. And I, I want us to kind of open up three of those ways that are true in this, in this paragraph that we read here from Hebrews 11. I want to talk to you, first of all, about no fear of tyranny. He says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. It's actually particularly his mother when you read Exodus 1. Because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The story, of course, is that the Hebrews are a slave people in Egypt. Pharaoh has ordered that all baby boys be slaughtered so as to control the population of the Hebrew people, which was getting large and he was getting a bit scared. Now, we need to start here and just take a step back and think about our situation. Generally speaking, the things that we're afraid of are relatively trivial in the grand scheme of things, aren't they? I mean, I think, you know, the kind of fears that, you know, plague us on a day-to-day basis, whether it's, you know, fear of being disliked or being rejected or of missing our goals or these kinds of things. These things, though feeling insignificant to us, on the grand scheme of things, are relatively insignificant. And then he steps in. And it, the same in many ways is true for these people in, in the book of Hebrews, that their, their day-to-day experiences were nowhere near as dangerous as what Moses and his family were going through at the time. And what he's showing us here by calling to mind this powerful and profound example of faith is he's trying to show us that faith can give you power to overcome even the worst dangers that life can throw at you. By faith, it says Moses was hidden. It doesn't sound like a faith decision, does it? You've got to realize that what was going on here was a kind of subversive civil disobedience. It's like the story of Anne Frank's family being hidden in secret walls, behind secret walls in in compartments in the house, while the Nazis were trampling all over the Netherlands. It's like Oscar Schindler really risking his own neck by harboring 1,200 Jewish people to work in his factories, claiming that he needed them for the labor and saving them from the death camps. We're talking about something which was actually incredibly risky, incredibly bold, incredibly brave here. Now, why is this faith? And he tells us it was faith because, for one thing, his mother particularly, but the parents, they saw that the child was beautiful. Now, Understand, I don't think it's the case that Moses' mother gave birth. And she looked at her baby boy and was like, wow, this is actually a really good-looking child. I think we probably need to keep this one. You know, actually, I think it's much more like this. If you've had, a few of you have, but not many of us have had the experience of having your own child come into the world. I remember when Seth was born, with all the chaos around that birth, but I remember when he was born, and he... He lay awake for four hours after he was born, looking around the room. It's kind of a sign of things to come. So observant, just trying to hunger for knowledge. And to be honest, Seth was not a good-looking baby. I, at the time, I thought he was just the, the, the cutest thing I'd ever seen. It's kind of what happens. You get like these goggles when, you, when it's your own child. I look back on photos and think, why, why did I think he was so cute? But he... He was mine. But it's more than that. When you have a child, there's like this deep, God-given instinct that kicks in where you just know this is the handiwork of the living God. I could not create a life 
God has knitted him together in his mother's womb. And I think when Moses' mother, where faith comes into this, it's not just that she, she looked at him and thought, wow, he is so cute, I'm going to hide him. I think she looked at him and thought to herself, this is God's handiwork, and only God has the right to give and to take away life. That's where faith kicks in. It's, this is how the fear of God works, isn't it? It's rightly ordered thinking. God is first. He created my son. My son's life can only be given and taken away by God. Therefore, it follows that I do not listen to the king's edict. And then it says another dimension of her faith here was that she was not afraid of the king's edict. She had reason to be afraid. By hiding Moses, she was endangering her own life, her husband's life, the old sibling's life, probably her whole community's life. You know how, just how irrational, tyrannic dictators can be in these moments. Show them, make an example of them. She hid Moses, not an easy thing to do when you have a squealing baby who's like less than three months old, because she was by faith not afraid. You see it. Faith in opposition to fear. She was not afraid of the king's edict. And we've seen this kind of faith at work so many times through history. But one of my favorite examples is a man called Brother Andrew. When I was a kid, it was one of the first biographies I read, this book, God Smuggler, which is about this Dutchman, Brother Andrew, who, um, in his passion for Jesus, wanted to live his life for Christ. And he found himself becoming a smuggler for Jesus. He would pack bags and line his coats with Bibles. A little bit later in his story, he, would ha- he had a, a Volkswagen Beetle. And here was the thing, the context of Europe in the mid-20th century was that the Iron Curtain had fallen over Eastern Europe. You couldn't pass through um, from west to east or east to west without severe checks and all the dangers of being accused of being a spy and all those kinds of things. And in Eastern Europe, behind the Iron Curtain, The communist regime had sort of clamped down on faith and religion. Churches were very much at risk. Some of them were being closed down. Bibles were not printed or distributed. It was very dangerous to own your faith in public. And Brother Andrew, firstly by himself, and then in his wake, an entire movement cropped up of people who would smuggle Bibles into these communist countries. He had secret compartments built into his Volkswagen Beetle so that he would drive through the barriers and the guards would check his car and they wouldn't see these things hidden all over the place. He'd be sweating as he sat there at the gate. And on occasion, he just had them, he had so many Bibles, they were just on open in in the boot of his car. But he said, miraculously, when the guards opened the boot, they couldn't see them. Something blinded them to what was happening. And he visited every communist country on the planet bringing Bibles his, his organization, Open Doors, still exists today and still works among persecuted Christians all over the world, trying to help them, support them, give them resources, pray for them and everything. I think that kind of faith sits in opposition to fear, doesn't it? She was not afraid of the king's edict. Are we ever likely to need this sort of faith? Are we ever going to be in need of faith against this kind of tyranny? No. I think what we're meant to do when we read a verse like this is obviously it was written for people at the time who maybe face a little bit more danger than we do and certainly has been read by Christians who face a heck of a lot more danger than we do. 
But I think we're meant to mainly read it and realize this, that if faith works in those kinds of situations, it can definitely work in mine. If faith can give people courage in what are very dark moments, when your child's life, your own life is at risk, and cause you to not give in to fear, then surely, surely when we think about our own situations and what can feel like the small tyrannies that intimidate us in life, whether it's people or situations or dangers, and particularly the tyrannies which put a lid on or stop you from acting on what you want to do for God, if they could have faith not to be afraid, then so must we. I think we're meant to draw an example from the greater to the lesser. Moses' mom was a giant of faith in that little act of hiding her baby. Surely we can stand up for Christ. But I also just want to say this, friends. I don't want us to forget that we do have this kind of tyranny at work in our nation. It's not that we're tossing babies into the Nile to be eaten by crocodiles. But our babies are being killed by the millions in the so-called health system. And with the difference that whereas Moses' mother was so self-sacrificial, endangering herself and her family for the sake of preserving life, we sacrifice our children for the sake of preserving comfort and convenience. Whereas the tyrant there was a pharaoh, a great dictator, an insane man. The tyrants in our nation are us, people who do these acts. Now, I want to say, if ever you found yourself in that, you've, you've had an abortion, Jesus has grace for all of this. I don't want us to hide what it is. I think it's evil, I think it's wicked, and I think it's, I think it's murder, but neither do I want us to, to hide in shame, to hide these secrets, because Christ brings this stuff into the light, binds us up, and heals us. You know, my own sister-in-law, Jenny, is being very public about this, that when she was a teenager, she had an abortion. And by God's grace, she came to know Jesus. She came to know his grace, his forgiveness. And God's love has washed over her in profound ways. You must never hide in the dark. But the reason why I just want us to bear this in mind, friends, is because this is the kind of tyranny that we see around us. And the temptation is to be afraid and not to speak. I'm sure some of you even feel a little bit shocked because I don't usually speak like this. Why would we be silent when a fear of God says, no, life is precious before his eyes? Faith in what God says is right and in his sovereign lordship over life must cause fear to scatter from our hearts as we treasure his will above all others. There is no fear of tyranny when we are in Christ. Here's the second thing. There's no fear of missing out. By faith, it says Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I think that these verses are one of the most powerful and clear 
insights into how Christians are called to embrace holiness in day-to-day life. Because it shows us in just a tiny little nutshell here, the dynamics of holiness. How holiness is saying no to something in order to say yes to something else. To use Paul's language in one of his other letters, it's, it's putting off so that you can put on. He talks about it like getting dressed into a new set of clothes. You put off the old life so that you can put on Christ. Holiness is always about, the very word repentance means to turn around, doesn't it? So it's turning from one opportunity in order to not just embrace a vacuum, embrace nothing, but to embrace something else altogether. I want us to look at this through the lens of what Moses did, his decisions in this little passage here. Because he tells us there's something Moses let go of, he gave up, he turned away from. And that he also tells us the, the stuff that Moses embraced. Let's think about it, the two sides of that. What did he give up, first of all? Three things. First, he gave up. He says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That is a perfect example of what biblical repentance looks like. He refused. Think about that word, refused. To be a Christian and to turn from sin involves at some point in your heart, some moment in your life, or moments, decisions to refuse, to renounce, to repent. And when you dig in, what what was it that Moses was turning away from there? He was turning away from his old identity. Here he was, a prince in the palace, and it says he refused to be regarded as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He He turned his back on that whole identity. And that is exactly what it means to become a Christian. You have a lineage, an identity, a way of seeing yourself which is outside of God's way of, of, of defining and naming you. And to become a Christian is to turn your back on your old identity entirely and, and to renounce it, refuse it, to repent of it, to turn away from it. And all the life and lifestyle and opportunities that came with that. That's what Moses did. It says, second, that he decided not to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You've got to realize, okay, when you think about Moses, what comes into your mind? Probably, um, probably like Charlton Heston in Ten Commandments, you know, big beard, robe, staff, fiery man of God. And yeah, I think he probably became something like Charlton Heston, or Charlton Heston was a little bit like what Moses was like. But actually, in Moses' younger years, you're probably getting a bit closer to his life and lifestyle when you start to think of a combination of someone like Justin Bieber and um, who else? We've got the Saudi oil kids who rush around London in their Ferraris with dad's money. And, you know, Prince Harry, you know, who's been notorious in the news for the things he's got up to. So Moses is this kind of Bieber, Harry, Saudi oil kid monster who has basically got everything in his lap, everything he could ever wish or hope for because he is a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He lives in the palace. He's been educated to you know, the nth degree, but he also has every pleasure imaginable, anything a man could want. He wouldn't have a Ferrari, but he can have whatever chariot he, he, he sets his eyes on, whatever woman he wants. It's all his. And it says, he, it says that he chose not to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
It's amazing, isn't it? Because when we think about what is it that most drives people in life, generally speaking, I think pretty much at root, most people are hungering for the very things which Moses had in abundance. Right? Wealth, every pleasure being satisfied. He had all of that on a plate in front of him. And he says he chose not to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I think I love that verse because on the one hand it's saying, listen, sin is is pleasurable. <laughs> oh my goodness, how he, he must have, so much of him must have wished that he could just keep enjoying or, or engage fully in the things that, that were his by right as a prince in the palace. Sin is pleasurable, it has a pleasure, but it also says this, that it has a fleeting pleasure. You enjoy it for a moment and then it's gone. You remember how the book of Proverbs says that it's sweet on the tongue and then bitter as wormwood in your stomach. Tastes good at first, leaves you with a wretched conscience. Moses chose not to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. So not only has he turned away from his old identity, prince, he's also turned away from all the old opportunities, sin. And then it tells us he turned away from the treasures of Egypt. You know, I... You know, it's very easy to romanticize when you don't have much money that it'd be quite easy to be generous when you do have it and to, be, to live as though it, it's not precious to you. But the reality is as soon as you have money in abundance, oh my goodness, how hard it is to part with that cash. Jesus, you know, made this point, didn't he? When he, he looked at the widow giving her might, all she had to live on and put it in the offering box. But how often do you see a wealthy person giving all they have to live on into the offering box. The more we have, the harder it is to be parted with a significant portion of it. And Moses, it says, he didn't want the treasures of Egypt because he recognized the spiritual danger of wallowing in all of that wealth. Those are the things he turned his back on. But he also turned in this positive way to embrace something different, a different way of life, different opportunities. And three things again. It says first that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God. I love this because here he is, a prince in the palace, in the seat of all rule and authority with the ear of the king. And he sees a people who are a slave people. Now, we tend to think, don't we, that in order to affect change and social justice and, and to bring righteousness to the earth, we need to be in positions of power. And sometimes that, that can be true. There are examples of guys like Wilberforce who use their power for good, their influence for good. But more often than not, most people who've set about to attain power to affect change have been corrupted by the power itself. And Moses did the very opposite thing. He turned his back on the power and embraced the identity of being a slave. We said he'd, he shared his old identity, didn't he, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, in order to be, what, mistreated with the people of God, to say, I'm a Hebrew, friends. I would imagine that he suddenly started to dress differently, that he styled his hair differently, that he, he began to look and resemble the people that he'd come from. And in this way, he reminds me of Jesus. Jesus did not bring about our salvation and, and transformation by ruling from on high with a command of his word. Instead, it says he took on flesh, 
became like us, entered into our experiences and our weaknesses and our temptations to identify with us and to carry our load on our behalf so that he could take all of your sin and bring it with him to the cross where he would once and for all atone for it, wipe it away. Moses, to me, models that kind of self-sacrificial deliverer pattern there by leaving the throne and going to be with the slaves. He says also that he embraced the reproach of Christ. He didn't have an easy life. When he decided to identify as a Hebrew, the result was he had to then spend 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. Imagine he had every type of food and delicacy imaginable in the palace, and then he probably went to gnawing on tough sheep meat and, and chewing grain and whatever it is they ate in the wilderness. You're showing my ignorance now. <laughs> but he had a hard life, a life under the beating sun. And then God gave him another task of shepherding God's people. All the abuse he suffered as the leader of an unruly and difficult people. Just think about how much abuse our leaders get. You know, vilified in the press, hated and abhorred. And Moses pretty much had very similar treatment by some of his people. Coups to try and overthrow him. The responsibility of bearing their burdens before God when they went astray and then praying for them when all they probably wanted to do was just walk away from the whole thing. But he did this to bear the reproach of Christ, to enter into the sufferings of Christ, to be identified with our God and Savior. These are the things he embraced. And here's another one. It says that he embraced the reward. It says in that last verse, he was looking to the reward. And here's how we can just sum it up when we think about this decision. Why did I call it no fear of missing out? Because here's how temptation and holiness, how these two powers work, this dynamic works in the Christian life. There is a very basic calculation that happens in your heart that says... I will gain more with Christ than all that I lose out on in that old life. When you don't believe that, you're controlled by FOMO, the fear of missing out. What, what, I want to turn back to these old things. I feel like I'm missing out on this pleasure and that opportunity and all that stuff, which is why some of you find yourself either in red-hot moments of temptation or chronic moments of just setting your direction to try and get the things that you want for yourself even though you know it's not God's will. It's a fear of missing out, isn't it? But the basic calculation Moses made in his mind and his heart was this. I gain more when I choose Christ. I gain more than all of that added up together. He was looking, it says, to the reward. When you do believe that, you start to live in holiness. It's always that simple decision, that simple dynamic in the heart. And that's a faith thing. It's a faith thing because all that Christ offers you is not particularly obvious on the surface of it, is it? Sometimes a Christian life doesn't look better. Sometimes it looks worse than all the stuff you've turned away from. It's only by faith that you can accept that it's better sometimes when it doesn't feel like it's going to be better. But there's no fear of missing out when you have, by faith, an identity with Christ. Here's the last thing. 
So there's no fear of tyranny. There's no fear of missing out. And here's the last thing. There is no fear of man. It says that by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. There's the fear of man. He was not afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I think the fear of man is the greatest threat to Christian mission. Every one of us knows what it's like to hesitate and maybe even to deny owning publicly your faith. I think it's become a little bit worse recently for us because of the great sin in public life of causing offense, of offending somebody. It's regarded as the greatest sin you can commit in public life. And then it's heightened even more by the power of social media bullying in in the internet and the permanency of ruining your own reputation. So while we don't tend to fear that we'll lose our lives, I think there is a fear that you can lose your reputation, your, um, your, your social group, all these kinds of things by identifying with Jesus. The fear of man is a crippling thing for Christian mission. Moses, it says, was not afraid. He did not fear the anger of the king. And where was the faith in this? Here it is. Because it says he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Who's the invisible one? It's Yahweh, the living God. His faith was in being able to perceive the reality of the God he served as being more real to him than the anger of the king of Egypt. That is how faith works in Christian mission and in killing the fear of man. God becomes more real to you than all of the reactions, offense. You know, I just want to say you know, it's okay to offend people. I think we tend to, we, I think we kind of bought into the idea that we must never cause offense. I just don't think that's true. Jesus caused offense all the time. Whether very deliberately by calling people broods of vipers and you know, hypocrites and whitewashed tombs and all that kind of stuff, or just by being himself, loving the outcasts, identifying with the tax collectors, healing the sick on the Sabbath. Everywhere he went, people were offended with Jesus. And we're so afraid, aren't we, of offending, of getting an angry reaction from people by identifying with Christ. We almost think that we've, 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 we've failed Jesus if people get angry with us, but that just isn't the case. The Bible says that the gospel is the smell of life to some, the smell of death to others. And if you have that kind of deathly reaction where some people smell your face and they think, oh my goodness, that is like putrid, disgusting. I can't believe you believe that stuff. That's okay. That's what Paul encountered everywhere he went. Everywhere he went. Such that people actually took it a bit further and thought, okay, we're going to beat you up for that. We are literally going to beat you up for that because you've made us so annoyed, so angry, you are so offensive, we hate you. Moses, it says, was not afraid of the anger of the king because he endured as seeing him who is invisible. When God is the biggest fear in your life, men shrink down to size. Men and their reactions. 
men and their sensibilities, men and their preferences. There's a point in Genesis where Jacob is talking about his father. He, called, he says about Isaac that Isaac called God the fear. God's name to Isaac was the fear of Isaac. You can capitalize it, the fear. Jesus tells us that we are meant to fear God. It's in one of the, the passages where he talks about owning him publicly as his disciples. And I won't read you the whole thing, but he says it repeatedly in lots of different ways. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He says that the men will deliver you over, this is Matthew 10, to courts and flog you in their synagogue. So he's saying, being my disciples can be very dangerous. You're gonna, as you engage with the mission of Christ, you're going to get in trouble everywhere you go. And he says the reason is because a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. So he's saying basically, if they treat me badly, then obviously anyone who is my follower walking in my footsteps is going to be badly treated if they really identify with me. But then he says, so have no fear of them. He says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, Pharaoh, whatever rejection or social death can happen to us. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Moses had an overriding fear of God. A fear that's born out of faith in the invisible one. But it wasn't a fear that caused him to cower in the dark. Because it tells us in the next verse that he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood. So that the destroyer, God's angel, might not touch them. And friends, that is exactly how it works in the Christian life. The fear of God is the most controlling fear in your life. But it's not a fear that causes you to run away from him and hide. It's rather a fear that causes you to get right into the heart, the eye of the cyclone. You know how in the middle of a a cyclone there's this spot of peace, isn't there? Everything swells around, the danger that's all around. And that's how Christian fear works. It causes you to find refuge with God in the very heart of the cyclone. How do we get refuge? The same way Moses did, by the sprinkled blood. But not of a lamb, the blood of Jesus that protects us from God's anger, his wrath, and makes us acceptable to him as children in his kingdom. And when that becomes the most important thing about you as a person, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who first and foremost understands that they are a child of the living God. A Christian is someone for whom every other fear in life has, been, has begun to shrunk and is being crushed by the overriding sense of awe before the living God, who not only is frightening, but has also drawn you into his family.